Hi, everybody, and welcome to Season 2 of Authors Unbound. I'm Patrick Davis, publisher and editor-in-chief of Unbound Edition Press. And as always, with me today is Peter Campion. Hi, Peter. Hi, Patrick. Can you believe we're back doing this again? I know. We've got a whole second season. We've been renewed. We've been renewed. Uh, major advertising support has made this possible. Yeah. <laughs> it's an exciting uh, season coming up. We get to talk with Danielle Chapman, who has written an amazing memoir of her growing up in the South that'll be coming out this fall. We get to talk with the wonderful poet D.A. Powell from San Francisco, um, talking with C.T. Salazar, a poet out of Mississippi, and so many others that have been kind enough to bring us their thoughts and share their time with us this coming season. It's, it's going to be a really good one. It's so much fun, and I'm just so gratified because I can hide my selfish nature. I just want to write all the time, you know, and after hearing these writers talk, it's like fuel. So it feels like, you know, listening to these writers is actually kind of enlightened self-interest. I think it's something that we all do to kind of reboot in life is tune into great art. It's been for me a lot of fun. And um, we've gotten some, you know, wonderful group of listeners, uh, larger than we expected. And we've gotten some good feedback. You know, this is, this is a, a blast. It has been a lot of fun. And it's been amazing to see the listenership, which, as you said, it was far more than we expected. And from places we never expected around the world, people are tuning in. And that means the world to us. So thank you, everybody, for sharing your time and your listening interests with us. We know you're tuning in for the authors, not for us. That's even more important. Peter and I are just here to have fun and, and feed our own minds, as, as you said. A few months ago, I had the remarkable opportunity to review C.T. Salazar's Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking, which is an absolutely remarkable collection of poems. And C.T. was kind enough to reach out after the review published in Salamander, a wonderful literary journal and said he was really pleased and so that began a conversation and that organically led to us having him as our guest today on Authors Unbound. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Authors Unbound, the podcast connecting passionate writers with passionate readers. I'm Patrick Davis, publisher and editor-in-chief of Unbound Edition Press. And I'm Peter Campion, executive editor of Unbound Edition Press. And today, our guest is the poet C.T. Salazar, who has written a remarkable book called Headless John the Baptist Hitchhike which is one of the more remarkable poetry collections I've read in several years. Peter, I know you've read the book as well, and we both are kind of blown away by it, I think. Yeah, there's an incredible lyricism here that includes the narrative, and it also has siphoned for itself the, the whole history, a tradition of kind of a, a certain religious tradition, a Christian religious tradition, a liturgical tradition and its stories and its language in the way that, you know, writers as great as Cormac McCarthy or Toni Morrison have 
been known to do. CT is a writer who has a kind of biblical foundation and is using it for audaciously new, wonderful, and I must say also a, a tender in ways. Uh, that's a word that's been used to describe your work, and I, I believe it's true in the best way. There's a sympathy here in these poems. At the same time, as there's a kind of surging muscularity, both in the anguish and some of the narrative, but also in this uh, prayer-like, full emotional, full spiritual investment in your work. And it certainly touches the eroticism of the work too. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. It's it's really a gift to to be read with like that level of attention and care. So that really does mean the world to me. It's an absolute pleasure to read this book. It's too general of a question, but Peter is right. The thing that first struck me when I had the honor of writing about and reviewing your book was this prayer-like quality, this sort of quiet in the night, trying to make sense of the world around us. And where does that come from in your life and your lived experience and understanding of, of culture and the, the need to sort of speak a truth and ask for relief? Where, when did this start bubbling up in you as a poet? Yeah, that's such a great question. A big part of my upbringing is the fact that uh, I have a Southern Baptist uh, white mother and a Latino Catholic father. So the tradition of the King James was in two very different ways, a prevalent part of like my just day-to-day household language. And even now, like I'm not the speaker of my poems, I believe is much more devout and faithful than I am. But the way that the speaker uh, thinks through problems and meditates is definitely like calling back from my own ideas of what prayer is at its heart supposed to accomplish. The idea that the question can be more meaningful than any answer you receive, but just articulating a need and just learning to dwell in the space of not knowing and learning how to assign language to what you don't know is just as much of an answered prayer and to, to take that unknowing and see how far you can go with it before you really need an answer, I think is a, a big part of prayer that we don't really talk about that much and a big part of faith. I think that's like a lot of where my poetic thinking kind of starts. That answer literally just gave me chills to find the adequate language of what we need is if that's not the human endeavor and the human challenge. You know, I, I'm not sure there's a better definition of it. I too grew up in a household that was a mix of a Southern Baptist and a Roman Catholic. So I appreciate, let's say the, the two doctrinal ends of, of the, that spectrum. And it does bring these really rich questions of what the hell does all of this mean? And how seriously do you take it? And how do you find a voice and for which God? because it's not always clear to whom you might be speaking when you're bringing voice to your hopes and needs and pain. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Patrick puts puts it so well, and I want to ask you to read a poem uh, that would illustrate this for our listeners. And I was thinking of the first poem in the book, Sonnet for the Barbed Wire Wrapped Around This Book, which is a sonnet, obviously, and it deals with the forum in a, its own way, and it's a, it's a very passionately wrought way. 
you have a formal intelligence throughout this book. You write exquisite sentences and also sometimes work in fragments or in kind of almost collage type syntax. Or you're also the final poem in the book is a great example. I'm thinking of poem with three names of God and a promise to myself, a long poem that is really successful, that is, um, has all the dynamism you know, that earns its space, to say the very least. It's a, it's a transcendently imagined poem. I was wondering if you'd read the sonnet. Yeah, yeah, and thanks for recommending this one, because this is, I forget about this one a lot, I, I think because it's just the first one in the book, so I hardly ever actually get a chance to read this one. Sonnet for the Bob Dwyer wrapped around this book. You were the first to show me what my blood looked like and praise be the first to say no to my soft body and sharp apology. And I know your name by heart, no trespassing. You tight metal fist and glory your after kiss. I saw you barbed on Christ's bleeding head and knew heaven speckled us like cattle, like I could be a wound cruxing a field and calm dawn. I'm a saint blue parable so telling how paradise takes and takes and maybe i wanted the world to wrap around me regardless of what that meant and on my arms these torn constellations made me heaven and my chest of bright stars the beautiful poem throughout this book stars appear frequently things sort of blowing apart into stars or being seen in the heavens or stars as destinations for hope or despair. When did you realize that that was sort of a, a central image for you? Did that happen organically as you put the collection together? Was this Has this been a bigger metaphor that you've worked with across the poems? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think um, I was already in a space of trying to figure out what poems would be this manuscript and was like, already laying poems out and trying to decide what poems uh, were too much and was, was not part of the book when I really noticed like that's something that happens so much in the poems themselves. And it was a decision to like lean into it. Once I kind of got comfortable with the fact that it maybe didn't feel too repetitive or redundant, that maybe I could like inhabit this image as a metaphor in a lot of different directions without it seeming like I was leaning on it or using it as a cop-out in some way. Then I started more and more intentionally writing towards like the star as a destination image to to land on and to explore a little bit further. But it, it was definitely like, and the rivers are the same way. It was, it was an impulse image that in my early drafting, I would always come to without really trying. It's going to force me, this is such an illuminating discussion of that metaphor. And uh, it's going to force me to ask you, to read another poem right off the bat, CT, I was wondering if you would read If a Star Break This Elegy Into Its Blossoming Fingers, which is another yeah. lyric that is just at the very heart of the book. Of course, yeah, yeah. And a, a little background on this poem too, uh, because it doesn't really come with explanation and there's no notes for it in the back. This poem was written with trying to imagine how a non- earth entity would mourn the passing of our entire species and like the planet as we're destroying it so like how a star would feasibly mourn the loss of us and if we would even be something like worth that time and attention if a star break this elegy into its blossoming fingers 
If a star, lullaby up and down freely. If a star, love me from a reasonable distance. If a star, a scar glimmering. If a star, hydrangea me blue. If a star, swallow me first. If a star, carve. If a star, crave me lonely. If a star, swirl with gorgon eyes. If a star, look with crackling mirrors. If a star, give God this hydrangea. If a star, cosmos me laughing. If a star, smear me light. Fantastic. Thank you. The other thing that I've noticed about the poems is, well, there's, I think, infinite things to notice about these poems, but one of the things that captured my attention so much about them is the reflection you give to parts of speech, to phonemes, to individual letters, to calling them out almost as physical objects within the poem itself. There's a materiality to the poems as much as there is the sort of celestial or the ethereal that, you know, is maybe the other bookend uh, to them. Where, where does that interest and intrigue in the tiniest parts of speech or words come from for you? I'm so glad that you've like honed in on that because that is a really important thing to me. And it, I think it comes from my day job and my uh, professional practice. I'm an archivist by trade. I, I have an ongoing interest with the materiality of language, with like the documentation process, especially with like the archives that other poets leave behind. And that's uh, like Sappho is in the book a lot because I'm just infatuated with how we're left with Sappho's archive and, and the possibilities of inhabiting that language that's not ours, but it's because it's a fragment, it's open on every side so we can inhabit it in so many different ways. I really am so interested in like the documents of history, the documents that we ourselves make every day without thinking about it, and even like the documents that are our own bodies, because our bodies are this ongoing document of our own history. Just because that's such a regular space for me to think through, that's definitely something that I bring to poetry writing. The phrase you just gifted us with, a fragment that's open on all sides, I might have to footnote you with that in some future poem or piece of writing. What a what a perfect phrase for what a fragment actually allows on the page and, and just, you know, as concept or as a metaphor. What comes before or after, we don't really know, but we can put almost anything there. And isn't that the heart of heart of writing itself? Yeah, yeah, it's the opposite of what we think of with like a, you know, a standard sentence that is closed on each slide. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Speaking of open-ended sentences, I was going to ask you about your new work. What are you What are you working on these days? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> what am I working on? I think I'm coming to terms with the fact that I what I have right now is a manuscript and a half. So I'm trying to understand what is my next book and what is not a next book. And I'm also still writing new work constantly. I'm a pretty slow writer though. So that even though I'm writing constantly, that is not to say that I have a lot of writing around because I don't, I'm very slow, but I'm in the middle of writing two really long poems. One long poem is I think like the main core of the work. And then there's a second long poem that is kind of like a footnote version of it or existing in like the periphery of this main work and i'm trying to figure out like 
how they're interacting together. They're both still in such early stages of being written, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out where they become one poem or if they stay two separate works. Well, it's lucky news for us because even if it feels slow to you, it sounds like you have probably two books eventually on the way and your readers will be grateful. What have you been reading? That's always interesting to hear what, what other poets are reading. I'm so happy to talk about this. Yeah. Just some good ones I've read lately. Taylor Johnson's book, Inheritance, from Alice James. It came out in 2019, I believe. Such a solid collection. It's a beautiful book through and through. And it, it takes place in like kind of the swamps of Louisiana and New Orleans and then also in DC. And it's very, it's very grounded, not just to like physical place, but it's got a big understanding of like the psychological landscape and there's so much going on in that book that's just so beautiful re-reading brian tier's the empty form goes all the way to heaven it's like an incredible book yeah. and like he's teaching me so much just because his understanding of like form and spatiality like how he puts stanzas on the page is just mind-blowing to me so that's been a big one another one is eloisa and Muska. Their second collection, uh, Fighting is Like a Wife, is a great book that centers the life and times of a historic boxer. And these poems are like this boxer in the ring, and then also like all of this boxer's relationships are in the ring too. And it's a, a such a cool collection. It's so one thing that's that's always fascinating to me as a publisher and an editor is kind of the journey from manuscript to book. And it's so different than people imagine that it's that than it is, right? You, we we're not we don't just print stuff, you know. You get manuscripts and you work with them and you live with them. And if you're doing your job right, you spend a lot of time with the author to actually find the book that's in the manuscript. What was that process like for you? I know Acre published your collection, wonderful press, as is Alice James. I'm glad glad to hear you mention them. But what was the process like for you of moving from manuscript to book? Yeah, yeah. So it was such an interesting thing because like if you're a poet, you know how to write poems. And then I started to realize that I, I know how to write poems, but I don't really know how to write a book. So that was new. Start to finish, like Headless John the Baptist Hitchhiking, it was about a seven-year endeavor between like the the age of the first drafts to when I had signed a contract for it. And I'm glad, like, what Acre Book made is by far the best version of that book that could have existed. A while ago, I thought the book was done, and I thought I knew what the book was, and I was sending it to a bunch of presses, and I was getting some positive feedback, like I had made some, like, finalist lists here and there, so I was getting, like, the encouragement to, like, keep trying, but I was ultimately, like, getting told no, right? And then, of course, so many, like, standard rejections, too. But I, I went through a phase where I was like, I don't have the energy for this right now. So I, I put the book in a drawer for like a year and just didn't think about it. And I was writing other material. I was writing the American Cave Wall Sonnets chapbook in that time because I just wanted to work on new work. And then in 2020, at the height of like the COVID shutdowns, I remember like distinctly I was on a back patio with my spouse and we were just talking and uh, she was asking like what I was working on, if I was in the middle of some poems or or what was going on. And I was talking through it with her and then I kind of just realized like, oh, I have a book somewhere. So I pulled it out after a year and just tried reading it like start to finish and I couldn't finish it. 
And I was like, that's not a good sign because I wrote it. So I took out like nine poems, I think, and then rewrote a good bit. And then I sent it to Acre. And then, so they were the first press I sent it to after that long break and they accepted it. You have no idea the hope you've just given me. <laughs> because Peter well knows, I have a manuscript that is buried in the backyard like a child in a Sam Shepard play. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, maybe just letting it sit on its own, I'll be able to come back to it freshly and understand you know. why why it's uh, where it is currently. I think we don't talk enough about this as writers that not writing and giving room to the word and giving time around the process is part of the writing process. <laughs> you, you know, we're, we're not churning out content for the internet, thank God. And the periods of not writing are often as productive as when you're staring at the page. Yeah, you're so right. And like my my like poetry hero is Eduardo Corral. And he's been such a model for me and just understanding to take your time with good work. Like his debut came out, Slow Lightning, in 2011. It won the Yale Younger. And then 10 years later, his second book, Guillotines, is here with Grey Wolf. And it's a beautiful book. And like just inhabiting that time in between and knowing that like, you know, Eduardo never jumped off like he never lost relevance as a poet because he wasn't like publishing a book every three years so he, he's been one that i've really been looking to for inspiration and like understanding that the good work takes time for a lot of us <laughs> so really leaning into his model that's like our good friend Otsuro riley a decade between his books but those two books are all you need to know that you have a major voice that is is just so remarkable. I'm wondering if you might talk with us for a couple of minutes about the importance of barns as they appear in the book. They seem to be another image that's important to you. And for me, they were so important in sort of grounding this book in the landscape of Mississippi itself. And the fact that this book sort of embraces in some ways the Paul the political pall of the South and the impoverished or the or the destitute landscapes that we're supposed to find inspiration from. And it's it's hard to find inspiration from places that might not be as rich as our dreams would have them. Where did the image of the barn as kind of one of the central images here come from? Yeah. So the the barns and I think this even ties back to materiality and document all of the barns that i grew up around like on surrounding like the property that i knew of as my own are all not from like this time so they're all really old like early 20th century constructions that people are still using or that are they're not using but no one has like cleared them off so they're just falling in on themselves thinking through their existence was a really important realization and time in my life when I was understanding the faux separation between the past and, and the present, especially in Mississippi, where like we are still actively swimming and drowning in our own history because the our history is very much still governing our present here. Looking at the barns and knowing like one of the barns on my own family area was built by my grandfather, who I never met. He had passed before I was born. 
but knowing that there was a space that I could inhabit that he made without ever meeting him, it felt like our timelines were spilling over onto each other in a, in a strange way. The more I uh, sat with that realization and started really looking at all of the barns that I know, just on like daily commutes to work, uh, drivings, outings, anything like that, where I could look at some of uh, the structure that someone else built, who is most definitely not alive anymore, but it's still standing. And to see that that history is not in a linear setting, but is circulating with us constantly, that became, and that's filled over into my own ideologically aligned political understandings of what is going on in Mississippi with our own present. Yeah. I wonder if she might indulge us in reading Barn Burner. Oh yeah, totally. Barn Burner. The barn doesn't love you, though over and over you enter its wide mouth like Jonah passing back and forth through the fish. Even with four horses and a loft full of crows, the barn is of no mind. The smoke above the barn is just the sky remembering the barn. Say it. Say the flame inside is just the barn pretending to be a man. The next time you put faith in anything, remember when the wind blows, the barn sings until it runs out of breath. Hell of poem. Uh, thank you. I mean, the movement from the celestial to the fire inside. It's done with such formal concision, and yet there is such real fire. The new poems that you're writing, are the subjects similar? Are you exploring something new in them? I think a lot of the subjects are pretty similar. I'm trying to get a little bit more pointed. I'm trying to rely a bit less on metaphor with what I'm writing right now and be more direct and trying to untangle the history of Mississippi with its contentions and its like strange romance to the Confederacy. I'm really trying to like write through some of those weird ideological leanings that so many Mississippians have, as well as trying to show the lack of harmony between what we think of in the country as like the pastoral, traditionally beautiful landscape and the like very real carceral landscape that's going on in Mississippi right now. A lot of what I'm writing, it's it's still very lyrical, but I'm I'm trying to make a point to not let myself drift into into hiding behind like metaphor and getting lost in it. I hope one of the things that our own press stands for is the idea that publishing in itself is a political act. You know, we have to put things out there that are dissenting in thoughtful and challenging ways. And that means disrupting, you know, how we've been taught to see things. So I'm excited to to know you're taking on political subjects in a pointed way. I can't wait to read what comes next from you. Should we turn to our Proust questionnaire? Yes. Thank you, Marcel. We have a questionnaire of Proust's parlor game questions and they're really quite good at at um helping us to do a just portrait of the poets and fiction writers and essayists we get to talk with so i'm looking at it right now and i was going to ask you uh ct what is the quality you most like in a poet if i pick up a book and if i'm immediately like drawn to it it's a good intentional like architecture to the poems like if the spacing if the shape of the stanzas 
if it's clear that some level of strong intention has gone to just the shape and form of of the poems that's usually that's going to get me reading what words or phrases do you most overuse in your own writing i'm a big compound worder like there's so many words that i understand them as compound words but they're not like farm truck farm truck is such a good one word and other good compound words that that are compound words like blackberry i i really find myself like occupying like that interesting level of like we understand these as one word that's great sort of like motherfucker yeah yeah totally (laughs) i feel like you know farm truck is a lot like i feel that i'm the only person in the world that uses the phrase prose book because most of the writing i do is poetry you know so think of something else it's prose yeah, yeah, that sounds very like Germanic old English. Yeah, to me. or like, like very like three year old, like you know, <laughs> you know, which is not to be ashamed of, you know. <laughs> right. We'll ask one more question after this. I don't want to end on a low note, but what do you consider the uh, the deepest misery as a writer? The deepest misery as a writer is like when you know you've got something good going in your head, but you just do not have the time or bandwidth in that moment to commit it to paper. Cause I've caught myself there before where it's like the thinking through lines in my head where I'm like, I know that's good. I know I should keep that going. And then it's just, I'm driving or I'm in the middle of something important or I'm in the classroom with students, which is also in the middle of something important. Um, and that I've just like, I've got to let that go. Like I can't hold on to that right now. <laughs> I think that's a pretty deep misery for a writer. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> Peter, take us to our glory with one final question that's not about misery. Well, I'm just going to um, keep relying on the same pitch that I, you know, this is, I'm going to mix baseball metaphors here that we get home runs for. You wouldn't want that if you're a pitcher, I guess. But, you know, I'm going <laughs> to um, ask you to read another poem of your choice because it's just so wonderful to hear you're such a good reader and to hear this book, which really has a physicality to it on every line in every phrase yeah thank you there's one i know that's been kind of in my head lately uh so the the title of this one was a throwaway line in my notebook that we have a not great governor in mississippi and i heard him speak through a work function and i remember just feeling so like i don't know unlit and burnt out after actually hearing him in person and so the the line I just wrote like one line after that and walked away from it, but and that line eventually became the title of this poem. So this one's called "It's Easy to Become King of a Place No One Wants to Live In," but it's really hard to stay alive after that. There is what is real, and there is what will be real, and this logic beheads me over and over. I named the scarecrow Azimandus. I think of my insides as strange aquariums for little blue fish when I'm falling asleep. I said I'm sick of you, but I meant to say I'm seasick of you. Rain is usually the first sign a curse has ended, but it means so little to my family's drought dry bones. Still, the sky says non-believer, hinge open your jaw for me. The star-filled starfield. Here I believe no country like the country where you and I, for the mercy of the barn, bending into the meadow, bend back. 
and demand a life this dirt could never really give us. That's okay. This was a language I was never meant to speak, but here I am, speaking it. Like a paper tiger unfolding in a field, I am waiting to be unrecognizable. How can I love you in one single shape? Any crease made by your hands makes me a treasure map. I'm a temple bell when you ring me. The moth of the orange eyes of God blinking on its wings sees us and sees us soldiers not knowing what to do with ourselves or especially our hands on a night so empty of fire, so faith in something like resting my head on your shoulder comes easy as the atmosphere is spending its sweet time with us. Even with so many stars bumping their foreheads against the glass, even with your hands holding my head together, and you singing about surrender and the men who won't. I'm so glad you read that. It's one of my favorite poems in the book. It really is. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening today to Authors Unbound. Our guest has been C.T. Salazar, a remarkable poet writing out of Mississippi with much more to come. We'll look forward to what's next from you, C.T., and thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you so much for having me and for your for your time like this. Absolutely. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Authors Unbound. You can find us anywhere you search for your favorite podcasts, Apple Music, Alexa, Google, or Spotify. And please check us out at unboundedition.com. Mm-hmm.